listening to One in 10 from National Children's Alliance. I'm Teresa Wiesar, your host. Join us as we engage in one-on-one conversations with the brightest minds in science, medicine, faith, communications, and the law. We'll discuss the path forward to solve the greatest challenge one in 10 of our children face, child abuse. In today's episode, Radically Vulnerable, Achieving Justice for Survivors, we focus on the legal landscape for adult survivors of child sexual abuse. For decades, state laws have lagged behind this key reality. It can take years before a survivor of child sexual abuse is able to disclose what happened to them. Yet laws in many states allow only a very short period of time to prosecute abuse or file a civil suit. Now that's starting to change. I talked to Marcy Hamilton, professor at the University of Pennsylvania and CEO of Child USA about the movement to reform statutes of limitations, both civilly and criminally what states are leading the way, and which ones are still lagging behind. Are we headed in the right direction? How can we help support adult survivors? And what do we need to do to keep more children safe? You know, I'm wondering, I think that most people would really be surprised that until recently, in many states, if an adult came forward and disclosed their abuse as a child, there was really no legal remedy for them, either criminally or civilly in most states. Can you talk about how that's been changing over the last decade or so and why that change? Sure. So, you know, it's really hard to believe at this point, but there was a time when most of the statutes of limitations for child sex abuse were a couple of years after the event. So a six-year-old would have until they were eight years old. Uh, or, uh, you know, a 13-year-old would have until they were 15 years old. And about 20 years ago, the state started slowly to, to stretch those out to uh, at least it would be 18 years plus two years. So to get up to the age of majority and they'd add two years. But the problem has been that for the vast majority of these victims, they're not ready to come forward until their middle years. Uh, the average age is 52 And as we have learned more about that reality, states have been slowly and incrementally adding years and eliminating statutes of limitations since then. And, you know, it's an interesting area of law. I'm wondering, how did you become interested in this? How did you become personally drawn into these cases and the public policy work you've done in the space? Well, you know, I'm a church-state scholar, first and foremost, and I had had a case at the Supreme Court and, you know, all these fancy theories. And when I was asked after the Spotlight Report came out to advise in some of the clergy sex abuse cases on the First Amendment, I asked the lawyers, I said, why are these people suing, but so many are not? And the Mm -hmm. answer was always the statute of limitations. I just thought it was so stupid. It's just an arbitrary deadline. So in my uh, naivete, I thought, well, I'll just write a book, which I did, Justice Denied, which was meant for the general public, and um, thought, well, when everybody figures out that we have foolishly had short statutes of limitations on child sex abuse, we'll just eliminate them. And is that what happened, Marcy? Uh, I can tell you honestly, that is not what happened. Uh, Almost immediately, there was 
scathing reviews from uh, some of the Catholic uh, publications, and uh, there was all of this pushback. And I just, I, I was being called names. And for me, it had been a little interlude while I was uh, on sabbatical at Princeton. And I just realized, oh, this isn't obvious to everybody. Okay, well, then I'm just going to double down. And so I've been doing it ever since. And, you know, I think that the other thing that, that might surprise people is that this really is state-by-state state work. You know, it's not one of those things where you can come in and say, well, we're just going to change it federally and it'll fix it for everyone. But I know that you have really been working, uh, you know, across the 50 states to improve this both on the civil and criminal side. And I'm wondering, did you find that people were more receptive um, to revising or eliminating criminal statute of limitations first or vice versa? Oh, there is no question. The appetite for eliminating the criminal statute of limitations has been much greater. So that at this point, we have 44 states, the District of Columbia and the federal government have eliminated at least the felony statutes of limitations. I mean, that that's pretty remarkable. That's huge. Yeah. Yeah. And on the civil side, you, you know, what do you think the pushback is about? Because it seems to me that, you know, and again, as someone who works in the field, fairly obvious that if you're an adult survivor, and let's say you did wait till you were 52 to disclose, that undoubtedly you're going to need counseling and other kinds of things. And often, you know, the abuser might have long passed away and there may be no criminal justice available to you. So what has all of this pushback been about? You know, it's interesting. The pushback has been coming from the Catholic bishops combined with the insurance industry. For the insur- for the insurance industry, it's all about the money. They were insuring either for negligence or liability of some sort or specifically for sex abuse. And when these cases happen, all of a sudden they have to pay on claims they didn't plan on having to pay on. Uh, for the bishops, I am firmly persuaded it's much more about keeping as many of the secrets as they possibly mm. can. Uh, and so they're grasping at whatever last shreds <laughs> right. that they can hold on to of their dignity on this. And um, so it's been it's been very interesting because the insurance companies are so wealthy and so highly connected. They just lobby behind the scenes. You never see them testify. Uh, but the bishops testify. Uh, in fact, Cardinal Dolan, when he was Archbishop in Milwaukee, testified himself. Uh, but generally, their lobbyists testify, and, and, and they uh, tell all sorts of stories about the end of the institution and bankruptcy and everything. So let me ask you this. I mean, there certainly are archdioceses who've reorganized in some way under you know bankruptcy laws or other things. But have you actually seen that, you know, um, one of these institutions, whether it's the Catholic Church or any other, has um, that the worst has been realized and they've had to completely shut their doors based on having to actually meet these um, claims by survivors. Not even close. Yeah. Uh, part of it is with the Catholic Church is that Catholic Charities, which is a wonderful organization, uh, in, for the most part, has... Uh, you know, been funded 80% by local, state, and federal taxes. And so any impact on the church does not put them under. Um, But the other part of it is that the Catholic Church just owns a lot of land, uh, just uh, the largest landowner in the United States. And so they always have the assets to deal with it. But 
and even for the other organizations this has hit, I have not seen anybody go out of business. Uh, so it's really just about, well, I always call them chicken little. You know, the sky is going to fall if you make us do what we ought to do in the first place. And then it doesn't. And then we move on. Well, you know, this is an exciting day. It's uh, completely by happenstance, but we happen to be talking on the day in which the New York's uh, Child Victims Act really became effective. And one of the things it brought to mind is what a hard-won battle this was because, you know, every state has reacted differently, I think, to these statute of limitations efforts. And some have fairly readily come along, some have been laggards, and then some it's been, you know, sort of a bar brawl. <laughs> I, would, I would say the <laughs> latter might be in New York. Can you talk about why it was so uh, difficult in New York and also just what an incredible win it is for adult survivors? Well, it is a huge win for adult survivors. They now have the tool that they never had before to have power against their abusers and the institutions that caused it. So it's, it is a pretty exciting day, but it did take us 16 years. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, I, I mean, I, it's, uh, it, it's a civil rights movement, and it doesn't happen overnight. And uh, I really, th this, this movement is particularly difficult, though, because for these survivors, well, and some of them don't survive. This process is painful. Yes. Being told year after year that your claims aren't valid, which is what's been happening to them in Pennsylvania, is so hard. But I think we see the dam has burst. And between New York and now New Jersey, those are two states where the Catholic Church has had enormous power, yet we're seeing windows open up both in both states this year. That, that's really a big deal. It's, it's really, I think, exciting. It has to feel validating for survivors, not because it's the end of their journey. In many ways, it's just the beginning of all the legal wrangling that will ensue, but even to have um, their concerns validated enough to be heard, I think, is right. an important thing. Can you talk, though, I think some people may not understand about statute of limitations windows, sort of how do those work and how do they differ among states and why are they important? So, you know, we really have two sets of victims that we have created in the society. We have the victims who are currently being abused right now. And for most of the states, they've extended their civil statutes of limitations and their criminal statutes of limitations. And so for the victim right now, they're more likely to get justice than the ones from the past. But we have this huge number of victims from the past that have been completely denied justice. So the question was, what do we do about victims who have been shut out so completely? Uh, and what California tried is to revive their criminal statute of limitations and their civil statute of limitations. The United States Supreme Court said, nope, can't do that with the criminal statute of limitations. So the only thing we can do for those victims from the past whose claims have expired is to revive their civil statute of limitations and we now have 17 states that have done that. Um, and this year, in 2019, uh, we're adding seven states to do that. So if people wanted to find out more information about where their state stacks with that, you know, I know you have information on your website. Can you just share with listeners where they can find more information about what the laws are in their state related to this? Sure. Uh, so we have uh, each of the individual states, and then we rank them in one way or another, uh, at childusa.org slash law. 
and the whole page is graphics and, and the laws that are involved with child sex abuse. Let me ask you another question. I know I was looking through some of your materials earlier, and I found it so interesting that you have um, some states that have really done outstanding work in this space. And then you kind of have a broad group in the middle, uh, which have done good work, but there's probably still more good work to be done. And then you have some that, you know, still are lagging. Who's do, who has done the best job? What state is really sort of on the leading edge of these issues? And sort of who's left on your list of uh, folks we need to persuade in the public policy arena to move along towards some of these better practices? Well, let me start with the two worst states, which used to be five, but New York and Michigan got themselves out of the, that category. Um, but at this point, Alabama and Mississippi are just, it's just tough. Uh, you almost, it's almost impossible to be able to sue in those states. Um, but the three best states are the, the three that have been the most innovative. And I would say that that would be Delaware, which as early as 2007 had already eliminated criminal and civil statutes of limitations and put in place a two-year window, uh, which was uh, really innovative for the country. And it, it, it set a standard. New Jersey has now uh, eliminated the criminal and extended its civil to 55, but they have passed a window nobody else has. They passed a two-year window that will help child victims and adult victims. So an adult who was raped and had their statute of limitations expired will also be able to get help under that window. But by far the most progressive state right now is Vermont. Uh, what Vermont did this year is to say there will be no statutes of limitations in civil cases involving child sex abuse in the future. It doesn't, there's no, it's not a window that opens and shuts. It's just permanently open and it's all about when the victim's ready to go to court. And in my view, that's where we're headed. Good for Vermont. So that that re leads me right into my next question with you, which is, you know, a lot of public policy work has been done in the space, but that doesn't mean that, you know, there's not plenty yet to do. If you had to think about your top two or three public policy aims where you say, you know, we need more voices on this. We need Congress to act or state legislatures to act or both. What is it? What's left? Well, and, and are we limiting it to the child sex abuse arena? Um, let's start there. Okay. Okay. <laughs> You and I have a mind meld on that. I'm totally, yeah. um, so the answer is uh, we still need to push for statute of limitations reform across the country. Uh, the vast majority of states still have not done all they can do for these victims. But we also need to be looking at our mandated reporting laws because we've left out some important categories in mm. some of the states. Mm. There are too many states where coaches are not mandated reporters and where clergy are not mandated reporters. Uh, and even when clergy are mandated reporters, we still have something called the penitent priest privilege or the confessional privilege, which says that if a religious member, a clergy member learns about sex abuse in a confession, and this isn't limited to Catholics, this goes across religions, they don't have to report. Um, but we know for a fact that religious leaders often learn about this first yes. and they often have mm -hmm. firsthand knowledge. And so 
we really need them to be mandated reporters. When, when you think about all the work that's yet ahead, do you feel encouraged in terms of public awareness or the sort of general zeitgeist, the, um, the after effects of the Me Too movement, those kinds of things? Or do you feel discouraged? You know, why has it taken 16 years to get New York to come around, for example? Oh, I, I am completely optimistic about this at this point, um, in part because this is just a banner year for SOL reform. And the result of SOL reform is we get all of these facts flooding the public. It's, just, it's by far the most effective way to educate the public about the prevalence of child sex abuse and about the fact that we have let our institutions get away with some terrible things. So uh, we're going to have an avalanche of information coming out that's going to help us. Um, survivors are being empowered. What, what does concern me about the Me Too movement part of this is I am worried about the victims that are hearing the idea that it's enough for you just to be able to tell your story mm-hmm. or that you have an obligation to tell your story, mm-hmm. even when you can't get justice. Right. And that's a lot of stress to take on in your life if you're not going to have any chance at justice as a result of mm-hmm. telling your story. Mm-hmm. It's a good point. And I don't know that it's one that, you know, maybe we have thought enough about as a society as as a whole. I think the other thing that, you know, you and I were conversing in an email chain today about was the fact that we come from the Children's Advocacy Center movement. Most of your or many of your listeners here to this podcast will be connected to it in some way. And one of the things that when a child, you know, discloses to someone, there's some uh, avenues for help, you know, beyond uh, even beyond the legal system, we can be assured that kids are going to get medical care or mental health care that they need. And I think one of the things that, again, um, some listeners might find surprising is that there's no equivalent for adults, you know, and it's not to say that rape crisis centers and other kinds of things, adult sexual assault centers are not doing really good and valuable work, but they're often not set up for a adult survivors of child abuse specifically in this one-stop shop kind of way. And I just, I worry, honestly, about adult survivors. And I know that many of our children's advocacy centers do and wonder what to do, you know, because they may get calls from them. And it's not entirely clear, you know, where to steer those individuals for the best type of help. You know, how can children's advocacy centers be most helpful, do you think, and other child-serving professionals for that matter, as they're reaching out and interfacing with adult survivors around these issues? I completely agree that uh, we have overestimated the ability of the adult survivors to be able to to do this on their own. Uh, And I I really think that, um, well, just to give you an anecdote, as I'm talking to various media about the New York Child Victims Act, I frequently frequently get the question, so what should um, a a victim do about getting involved with the Child Victims Act? And my answer is always, Get a therapist. Mm-hmm. Get a therapist first, and then we'll talk about justice. And mm-hmm. I think that we really need as a society to figure out a better way to create, whether it's one-stop shop or it is an online portal that mm-hmm. will give them, you know, all the things they need. I mean, we put together a, a survivor's toolkit for New York survivors that are going to be going through this window. 
because while everyone is thrilled, and this is a really a majestic moment after all of the struggle, um, it's stressful to go through the legal system, even when it's a, you know, even when it's a lot, a, just a little case, this is a big deal. So I hope that they'll all get the kind of therapy they need, but we all need, as our, as our organizations work together with others nationally, we need to figure out what to do, how to do a better job for the adults coming forward. The other thing that's been in the news considerably of late and that you all have been very involved in has related to child sexual abuse within youth sports, um, in particular within the Olympics um, and uh, its various sports entities. Here's why I asked the question, Marcy. I remember sitting in those commission discussions where we had the um, gymnast and as adults, they're Mm. talking about Mm -hmm. their experience with USA Gymnastics and with their local clubs and with their coaches. And, you know, I had never, aside from growing up and watching gymnastics, Olympic gymnastics on TV, I had, you know, no exposure to this. I was never a gymnast, any of this. So as they're describing the culture um, that they were exposed to beyond just, and I don't mean just, but beyond the sexual abuse, the thing that I found Honestly, shocking was the level of, of, of abuse of all types right. that was a part of the culture, and it seemed very pervasive to me. So, you know, being expected to perform with broken bones or other kinds of things, which, you know, I think one could consider that physical abuse, if that's known, the amount of emotional abuse that they described, the sort right. of yeah. psychological torture and meanness, you know, associated with those things. And... You know, I don't consider myself a terribly naive person, but I thought, oh my goodness, it feels to me like there's something somehow a little different about this than maybe some of the other institutional abuse cases that we've really looked at and talked about. And I'm just wondering your thoughts about that. Yeah. So I, I do think there probably are differences that we can identify. What's interesting is that we've done a literature search And honestly, there is nothing out there that is scientifically comparing athlete abuse and neglect to the general population. Oh, interesting. Whether it's worse or whatever. Mm. So, you know, so, you know, of course, we have started the Game Over Commission to Mm -hmm. study the Nassar scandal. We're blessed to have you as part of that. Thank you. Um, But that's. That's just looking at, that's trying to figure out, that's a case study. Mm-hmm. How did you have all of these institutions let all of these children down in every way? Uh, but at the same time, we're doing a much broader athlete study of Olympic athletes across sports other than gymnastics. So we'll be interested to see what we get. I mean, from those within sport, their hypothesis is that it won't be that there's more sex abuse in sports, but there will likely be more neglect, like deprivation of food and sleep and more more emotional um, upheaval. And, you know, I I keep coming back to this one uh, overly simplistic, but there's something, there's a nugget there that is working through all of these arenas. And that is when children are thrown into an adult world, whether it's Olympic sports or Hollywood, and they don't have a parent with them every minute, they're at risk. Yes. They just can't. They're they're, they're radically vulnerable. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. And so, you know, if you watch Leaving Neverland about Michael Jackson mm. or Heart of Gold about the Nasser scandal, I, I, it in some ways it is all the same because it's kids being incapable of defending themselves. But I do think there are other elements of sport that makes it distinguishable. Well, the other thing that, and it's interesting that you say that, because I think one of the other common threads is how much grooming of the parents occurs and how much control over the parents really emerges across these. So whether it's um, clergy who essentially groom parents to accept their children spending inordinate amounts of time privately with and uh, one-on-one contact with an adult or whether it's you know uh, the way in which uh, youth athletes describe their parents being made to sit across the gym not able to go into areas um, where the team doctor was not able to go into areas um, in the locker room so in other words this this idea where the parent is really disempowered and begins to accept a set of behaviors that if you just said at the outset, you know, what we're going to do here is I'm going to take your small child back into areas you can't see and do whatever I want. And you're not going to have an idea what had happened. And if your child complains about anything, they're just going to get kicked off the team. No one would agree to that. But the (laughs) way, right. But the way in which it happens, which is so insidious, where it's one broken boundary after another, so mm-hmm. the parents begin to accept that. I think that that's something that has really struck me because when it's paired with this radical vulnerability of kids, as you're describing it, and I agree with, you know, it's just a recipe for disaster, I think. Oh, and I, I think that's a really great way to describe the problem. It, it's they, they build up the opportunities by creating this universe where the parents all of their, uh, you know, antenna are just become deadened and the guy gets away with everything. I mean, in, in some ways, it's the best example, I think, is was Dr. Earl Bradley. Now, this isn't sports, but it's the mm. way it works. Mm. You know, he creates a waiting room where the parents are going to be happy on computers and pinball and right. where the kids have lots of toys to play with. And then he himself takes the kid to the room himself while the parents stay out there in that lovely waiting room. I mean, it's just when you create a universe where everyone trusts the abuser, not knowing Mm, he's abuser mm. and everybody's happy, it's really hard. And so I I think part of our mission is to educate parents that you just can't say yes to a lot of things that I think we have said yes to in the past. I think that's really true, you know, and for our listeners too, can you talk a little bit, because I think the Game Over Commission hearings are going to be really important in giving both these adult survivors an opportunity to share their story and really testify to what has happened to them and what they experienced. But also, I think it's a real opportunity for the general public um, to learn more about this. So, you know, one of the questions somebody might have is, okay, lots of folks have looked into the Nasser case. How is the commission's hearings different? What are we hoping to learn from that? What are you hoping will ultimately come of it? Well, you know, there have been studies, uh, but they've almost all been done by uh, the lawyers for the defendants, for Michigan State University, for USOC. And so that really makes me pause. Those aren't independent uh, mm-hmm. investigations. And Congress has recently completed a study, but 
to a large extent, it reads like it's taken directly from one of these studies. Oh, yeah. so, so, uh, so, what what the Game Over Commission is that's uh, virtuous, in my view, is that it's independent. It's experts like yourself and David Corwin and um, Dr. Phil Scrabano from um, CHOP in Philadelphia. I mean, really uh, dedicated, brilliant people working on these issues. And we're literally just gathering all the data we possibly can. And at the hearings, what I hope, is that we'll hear from survivors, but also from parents and whistleblowers um, who can help us to understand how was this so easy for Nasser? Why were there so few barriers that were put up either by the parents, the universities, USOC, USAG, USA Gymnastics, the, the gyms? All these should have been safety nets for kids. And so I do hope we'll be able to get some greater insights than just what we've had so far on essentially the defense side. You know, we've been talking very much about um, adult survivors and also the legal community, children's advocacy centers. But if you could talk to the sports organizations themselves or the other institutions themselves, whether it's the Catholic Church or anyone else, what would be your best advice to these institutions as they move forward? Because I feel like this issue is not one that's going to go away. I, it, it feels to me like there's been a very much needed but true change in our culture to say this is really unacceptable. We're not going to tolerate this anymore. Sex abuse is not going to go away entirely, but the hope is that we'll be able to prevent as much as possible. And I think what the institutions must come to understand is they can't do this by themselves. Mm. And you know, the more that I've worked on these issues over the years, the more I'm persuaded that it's not just enough for them to institute prevention procedures. It's not just enough to empower the victims with better laws. Both are needed. Um, but we really need to get civil society involved. And in particular, I think the insurance industry could do a really valuable job here of helping to prevent sex abuse by instituting annual child protection audits for youth serving organizations. And frankly, if an organization is not, does not have the cutting edge practices that will keep its children safe, it shouldn't be able to operate. Uh, and if there's any entity in the country that can stop you from operating, it's your insurance company. So true. <laughs> so, you know, I, it, it, we have an enforcement mechanism there yeah. that we can add to the legal mechanisms that I think we can go a long way to prevention. And we have already started talking uh, to some of the insurance folks and there's interest. I, I, I think they, they understand themselves as risk prevention and that they need to get on the, the right side of this issue. They've been on the wrong side for too long. Well, and they have to be tired of the payouts, if nothing else. Yeah. I mean, some of them have been very large, so one hopes that at least the incentives are running in the right direction now. I know, that's what I, that's what I keep saying, but uh, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> So I just so appreciate your research, your writing, all your work in this space. Is there any question that I should have asked you that I didn't? Is there anything that you'd just like to make sure that children's advocacy centers and other multidisciplinary professionals take forward in this work? Well, I, I just hope that people understand that every one of these uh, victims is really doing the best they can to come forward when they do. 
And so, you know, let, let's just listen to them. And, and whether it's the little five-year-old who says, I don't really like going on vacation with Uncle Joe and we need to stop and listen, or the adult at age 50 who says, uh, I've got to tell you something. We just need to do a better job of listening. And the more we learn, the more action we'll take. Uh, what's really kept us behind is all this secrecy. Well, thank you for all the action that you've taken. I really appreciate you coming on to the podcast today, and I'll look forward to talking to you after the Game Over Commission's hearing as well. Sounds good. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks, Marcy. Thank you for listening to One in Ten. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode when we'll talk to Dr. Lisa Amaya Jackson of Duke University and the National Center for Child Traumatic Stress. We'll discuss the unintended consequences of the way we frame adverse childhood experiences. For more information about National Children's Alliance and the work of children's advocacy centers, visit our website at www.nationalchildrensalliance.org.